This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Scott Sagan, Professor of Political Science, Senior Fellow at FSI, and the Co-Director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation. And I want first to welcome Shashi Tharoor back to Stanford. He's had a close collaboration with us for many years, working closely with former CSAC fellow Bruce Jones and current FSI senior fellow Steve Stedman when they were both UN officials during his reign as undersecretary at the UN. And he has been to Stanford to give seminars and guest lectures, including a guest lecture in my class over the years. So we're very pleased to welcome him back. He needs very little introduction, especially since you have a bio um, in your uh, package, in your brochure. But I do want to say just three things that as a historian of India, he has great insights into both the great strengths and the great weaknesses of the Indian state over the years and continuing on. As a United Nations diplomat, he has significant insights into both the great opportunities and the many frustrations that exist in state interactions with international institutions. And as a biographer of Nehru and as a novelist, he has great insights into the depth of the human heart and the complexities of social interactions. And I can think of no one whom I would rather hear on the question of India's future as a great power than Shashi Tharoor. Thanks very much for that introduction, uh, Scott. I must say that uh, I'm immensely relieved because these days when you come to address audiences at universities, you never quite know how you're going to be introduced because people have this wonderful habit of looking you up on the internet and actually finding things you haven't really done and ascribing them to you in front of a room full of people. Uh, one, one professor I know actually likes to look up people not only by what they might have accomplished, but by deeds and misdeeds up the family tree, the, uh, the conduct of uncles and aunts and grandparents. And one occasion he found a speaker had an uncle who had uh, been electrocuted at Sing Sing Prison for uh, kidnapping an armed robbery or something equally horrible. But having taken the trouble to look this up, he felt he had to use it. So he said, uh, now our distinguished speaker, he said, I had an uncle who occupied the chair of applied electricity at one of the nation's leading institutions. <laughs> Which is just my way of saying that these, uh, these kind words should be taken with a pinch of salt. But thank you so much. It's good to be back on this lovely campus and speaking to you all here today on the topic that I didn't invent was given to me by the organizers, India's future as a great power. Now, it gives me great pleasure. Oops, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, you're not supposed to begin a speech with the words, it gives me great pleasure. That was one of Winston Churchill's rules, you know. Apparently, when Churchill and all these young um, uh, parliamentarians were elected at the cusp of the previous century, they decided they had to improve the level of parliamentary debate in Britain. So they drew up a list of rules of what to say and what not to say, do's and don'ts in public speaking. And one of the first rules was never begin a speech with the words, it gives me great pleasure. In fact, it was said that these youngsters would write up 
topics uh, to challenge each other, tear them up in strips of paper, put them into a top hat, and then they would draw these topics and practice speeches using these rules. So the story goes that one occasion, um, Churchill drew his topic out of the hat, and it was sex. So he said, it gives me great pleasure. And he sat down again. <laughs> but I'm not going to let you all off the hook quite so easily. I'm not going to sit down just yet, because I have been asked to address you um, on India's prospects as, as a great power in the 21st century, and to do so now a few months after the 60th anniversary of India's independence. And that's that's uh, indeed a source of, of, of some pleasure. At midnight, in fact, on August 15, 1947, independent India was born as its first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, Scott was kind enough to mention my biography of him, proclaimed a tryst with destiny, a moment which comes but rarely in history, Nehru said, when we pass from the old to the new, when an age ends and when the soul of a nation long suppressed finds utterance. Well, with those words, he launched India on a remarkable experiment in governance. Remarkable because it was happening at all. In fact, India, Churchill had once barked, is merely a geographical expression. It is no more a single country, Churchill said, than the equator. Well, Churchill was rarely right about India. Uh, but it is true that there is no other country in the world that embraces the extraordinary mixture of ethnic groups, the profusion of mutually incomprehensible languages, the varieties of topography and climate, the diversity of religions and cultural practices, and even the range of levels of economic development that India does. In India, we seem to manage to live on all centuries at once. And yet India is more than the sum of its contradictions. How can one talk about this land of snow peaks and tropical jungles with 23 major languages and 22,000 distinct dialects, some spoken by more people than speak, say, Danish or Norwegian, inhabited in the seventh year of the 21st century by over a billion individuals of every ethnic extraction known to humanity? How does one come to terms with a country that's still almost 40% illiterate, but which has educated the world's second largest pool of trained scientists and engineers, a country whose teeming cities overflow while two out of three Indians still scratch a living from the soil? What is a clue to understanding the future of a country that's still rife with despair and disrepair, but which yet moved a Mughal emperor to declaim, if on earth they be paradise of bliss, it is this, it is this, it is this. How does one gauge a country which elevated nonviolence to an effective moral principle, but whose freedom was born in blood and whose independence still soaks in it? How does one explain a land where peasant organizations and suspicious officials have attempted to close down Kentucky Fried Chicken as a threat to the nation? A country where a former prime minister bitterly criticized the sale of Pepsi-Cola because it's a country where villagers don't yet have clean drinking water, and yet the same country invents more sophisticated software for American computer manufacturers than any other country in the world. How can one determine the future of an ageless civilization that was a birthplace of four major religions, a dozen different traditions of classical dance, 85 major political parties, and 300 ways of cooking the potato? Well, the short answer is that it can't be done, at least not to everyone's satisfaction. In fact, any truism about India can be immediately contradicted by another truism about India. It's often jokingly said that anything I tell you about India today, the opposite is also true. In fact, our country's national motto 
emblazoned on the governmental crest is Satyameva Jayate, truth alone triumphs. The question remains, however, whose truth? It is a question to which there are at least a billion answers. That is, if the last census hasn't undercounted us again. But I know that sort of an answer is no answer at all, and so another answer to these questions has to be sought. And this may lie in a simple insight. The singular thing about India is that you can only speak of it in the plural. There are in the hackneyed phrase many Indias. You know, you all know e pluribus unum. Well, if India had to borrow that in dog Latin, it would probably have to be e pluribus pluribum because everything exists in India in countless variants. There is no single standard, no fixed stereotype, no one way of doing things. And this pluralism is acknowledged in the way in which India announces and arranges its own affairs. All groups, fates, tastes, ideologies survive and contend for their place in the sun. At a time when most developing countries opted for authoritarian models of government to promote nation building and to direct development, India chose to be a multi-party democracy. Today that means a coalition government of 20 parties, some with just one or two members of parliament, which has succeeded an earlier coalition government of 23 parties. And as we've just seen in the debacle of the Indo-US nuclear deal, which I gather Bob Blackwell has told you about this morning, which instead of being hailed as a major diplomatic triumph for India, was stymied by the opposition of the communists without whose votes the government would have fallen, India's fractious democracy does not lend itself easily to the kind of decisive action normally associated with great powers. Well, one result is that India strikes many as maddening, chaotic, inefficient and seemingly unpurposeful as it muddles its way through the first decade of the 21st century. Another, though, is that India is not just a country, it's an adventure, one in which all avenues are open and everything is possible. In fact, one of the very few generalizations that can safely be made about India is that nothing can be taken for granted about the country, not even its name. For the word India comes from the river Indus, which flows in Pakistan. Okay, that anomaly is easily explained, for what is today Pakistan was, of course, part of India until the country was hacked out of the stooped shoulders of India by the departing British in 1947. But each explanation breeds another anomaly. Pakistan was created as a homeland for India's Muslims, but, at least until very recently, there were more Muslims in India than in Pakistan. Why does all this matter? India, wrote the British historian E.P. Thompson, and I'm quoting him here, is perhaps the most important country for the future of the world. All the convergent influences of the world, wrote Thompson, run through this society. There is not a thought that is being thought in the West or the East that is not active in some Indian mind." Unquote. I'm glad a Brit said that and not an Indian. But that Indian mind has been shaped by remarkably diverse forces. Ancient Hindu tradition, myth and scripture, the impact of Islam and Christianity, and two centuries of British colonial rule. The result is unique. But there's even more to why India matters and why the future of India matters in the 21st century. In fact, 10 years ago, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of India's independence, I wrote a book called India from Midnight to the Millennium. And President Clinton was kind enough to browse in a bookstore in Martha's Vineyard and emerge holding it, which certainly assured it its brief spasm of, uh, of, of, of fame. But in that book, I, I focused on India as a country standing on the cusp 
of four of the most important debates facing the world at the beginning of the 21st century. The bread versus freedom debate. Can democracy literally deliver the goods in a country of poverty and scarcity? Or do its inbuilt inefficiencies only impede rapid growth? Is the instability of political contention and makeshift coalitions a luxury that a developing country cannot afford? As today's young concentrate on making their bread, should they consider freedom, political freedom, a dispensable distraction? Then the centralization versus federalism debate, which applies, of course, not just to India, but to any of the larger countries in the world. China, which has found a different answer to the first question I asked, but also Nigeria, South Africa, Russia, Indonesia, plenty of examples. So does tomorrow's India need to be run by a strong central government able to transcend the vociferous tendencies of language, caste, and region, or is that government best that centralizes least? Third, the pluralism versus fundamentalism debate. You've all been familiar with it in the context of the Middle East and the Islamic revival. But it's not just there that these issues have arisen. In India, too, the question has been asked, is the secularism established in India's constitution and now attacked by some as a westernized affectation, is that essential in a pluralist society? Or should India, like so many other third world countries and like all its neighbors, find refuge in the assertion of its own religious identity? Serious debate that's arisen in the last 20 years. And fourth, the, what I rashly call the cocoa colonization debate, globalization versus self-reliance. And since your theme today is prosperity and power, I should probably spend a couple of minutes on this debate. But the question is, should India, where economic self-sufficiency was the mantra for the first four and a half decades after independence, open itself further to the world economy, even if it means dismantling the cherished assumptions of its nationalist leaders. See, don't forget that when all of you, or most of you here anyway, have grown up in an America where you've axiomatically associated capitalism with freedom, third world nationalists, and India's certainly were no exception, associated capitalism with slavery. In India's case, the British East India Country Company had come to trade and stayed on to rule. So nationalists were immediately suspicious of every foreigner with a briefcase, seeing him as the thin end of a neo-imperial wedge. The assumption was, of course, that if you want to guarantee your political independence, you have to preserve your economic independence. Because if a foreigner comes for the economic motives, what he really wants to do is to rule you. And so instead of integrating further into the, into the system of global capitalism that began to make the world prosperous after the Second World War, India's nationalists protected themselves from it. They threw up the protectionist barriers. They put bureaucrats rather than businessmen on the commanding heights of the Indian economy. And they spent the next 45 years regulating stagnation and distributing poverty, which shows you that one of the lessons you learn from history is that history sometimes teaches, teaches the wrong lessons. But in any case, this is something which we've seen in many, many developing countries. And in India's case, it was only in 1991 with a major economic crisis that India abandoned this approach, made the paradigm shift, integrated into a globalized world economy, and we're seeing the benefits of that today. But then a new debate has arisen. Does the entry of Western consumer goods bring in alien influences that threaten to disrupt Indian society? In other words, should we raise the barriers again, this time to shield our youth from the pernicious seductions of MTV and McDonald's? Uh, there's also a fifth debate that I did not discuss in that book, out of, out of deference to the restraint expected by my then employers, the United Nations, what one might call the guns versus butter debate, the case for expenditure on defense 
against spending on development. With the 21st century having begun amidst new threats of terrorism and renewed talk of nuclear confrontation, there is an ideological battle looming between advocates of military security, freedom from attack and conquest, and those of human security, freedom from hunger and hopelessness. It's difficult to deny that without adequate defense, a country cannot develop freely according to its own lights. It's equally impossible to deny that without development, there will not be a country worth defending. Now, these are not merely academic debates. They're now being enacted on the Indian and the world stage. And since the century has begun with Indians accounting for a sixth of the world's population, their choices will resonate throughout the globe in the 21st century. And I think that is a context and a background to the topic that I've been asked to address today. Now, of course, I should admit straight away that talking about India to a largely American audience, or at least an audience in America, offers plenty of scope for misunderstandings. In fact, with the best will in the world, it's easy to misunderstand each other. Uh, as an Indian who's lived for some years in America, I want to share with you, though I fear it may be too early in the day for this, my favorite story of Indian-American misunderstanding. Because uh, it goes to the heart, in some ways, of our ways of looking at these things. It's a, it's a story of, a, of a, an American farmer who comes to India to advise on, on, on farming before India's Green Revolution. And he comes to this Indian farm and is welcomed by the very hospitable and gregarious Indian farmer. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, thanks to our land reforms and our population pressures, the, the farm isn't much larger than this lovely room we're having lunch in. But the farmer says very proudly, you know, my land goes all the way up to there. The American looks, he doesn't see very much. And the Indian farmer says, do you see that national highway? And the American looks, he sees a dirt road. Uh, and the Indian says, my land goes all the way up to there. And then he says, do you see that irrigation canal? And the American looks and he sees a trickle of water. And the Indian says, my land goes all the way up to there. And then he says to the American, and what about you? Well, the American is a farmer from Kansas, so one of these prairie wheat field states, you know, where the fields roll on for miles on end. <laughs> so he clears the throat and he says, well, in the morning, he says, I get into my tractor and I drive four hours north to the northern boundary of my land. He says, and then I spend about three hours in my tractor getting to the western boundary of my land, and then I break for a sandwich. He says, then it's another two and a half hours in my tractor down to the southern boundary of my land. And he says, at sundown, it's another hour and a half in my tractor back to the ranch house. He finds the Indian nodding very sympathetically. I know, I know, says the Indian. I too used to have a tractor like that. <laughs> now, now, the reason I tell you that story, other than making sure that you aren't too busy digesting your lunch to listen to me, is a very simple point, that what you understand depends on what your assumptions are. And just as our Indian farmer had great self certitude but very little to base it on. Some Indians sometimes, I think, today are getting a bit carried away by their own successes, and the problem, therefore, lies in their assumptions. As I said, as an Indian, I was intrigued by the topic I was asked to address today, because I am a little concerned about the multiplication of those in this country and in my own country who speak of India as a future world leader or even as the next great power. Many thinkers and writers I respect have spoken of India's geostrategic advantages, its economic dynamism, its political stability, its proven military capabilities, its nuclear space and missile programs, the entrepreneurial energy of our people, and the country's growing pool of young and skilled manpower as assuring India great power status as a world leader in the new century. 
Now, I have a problem with the assumptions behind that phrase. The notion of world leadership is a curiously archaic one. It, the very phrase is redolent of Kipling ballads and James Bondian adventures. And what makes a country a world leader? Is it population? In which case, India is on course to top the charts because India will overtake China as the world's most populous country by 2034. Is it military strength? India's is already the world's fourth largest army. Or nuclear capacity, India's status having been made clear, if not yet formally recognized, in the Indo-US nuclear agreement. Is it economic development? There, India's made extraordinary strides in, in recent years. It's already the world's fifth largest economy, I think it may even be higher in purchasing power parity terms, and it continu continues to climb, currently at a rate of 9.6%, with some rash talk of even 10% before too long. And I suspect this is what the organizers of the conference had in mind when they asked me to address you on the future of India as a great power. Now, I don't want to undersell the importance of all this. Indeed, my most recent book, which was just out last month, a collection of essays on India called The Elephant, the Tiger, and the Cell Phone, portrays an India in the process of transforming itself from a ponderous, lumbering, slumbering elephant, mired in its own history and covered in dust and flies, into something of a sprightly, life and agile tiger. And the cell phone finds its way into my title because it's emblematic of this transformation. I think I'll digress for a minute to tell you why, because I grew up in an India, as I suspected many of the Indians you're likely to meet in Silicon Valley. I grew up in an India where telephones were a curse rather than a convenience. Uh, I left India to come to graduate school in this country in 1975. We were a population of about 600 million people. There were two million landline telephones. But when you picked up the telephone, you weren't sure you'd get a dial tone. When you dialed a number, you frequently stumbled across somebody else's conversation. It was called a cross-connection. The connections made us all very cross. And, and on top of that, you could spend three hours waiting for what was called a trunk call from, say, Bombay to Delhi. Or you could pay a premium for what was called a lightning call that would just take half an hour to connect you from uh, wherever you were to the nation's capital rather than, rather than the three hours. Uh, and on top of that, when a member of parliament stood up as late as 1984 to um, attack the government for the way, woeful way it was running this national monopoly, Indira Gandhi's communications minister, a gentleman called C.M. Stephen, replied in a lordly manner that telephones were a luxury in a developing country, not a right, and that if the honorable member didn't like his telephone service, he could return the instrument because there was a waiting list of eight years for people waiting to get a telephone in India. Now, that was the, the context from which India emerged. Well, from that India, when I wrote this book, and I sent it off to the press in April uh, of, this, of this year, I was able to say that India had just set a world record by selling 7 million cell phones that month, April. Well, the book went to press. It's been printed and bound and out on the bookstores last month, and it's already out of date in that one detail because last month, India sold 8.5 million cell phones. So that's the kind of transformation you've seen, both in terms of numbers in terms of attitudes, because we've gone from that kind of communications minister to a telecoms regulatory authority that's considered a model of its kind in the world. And what's more significant is who has these cell phones, because the people who are, who are buying India's cell phones today are by and large the people who could not have dared to presume to put themselves on those eight-year-long waiting lists for landlines in the good old days. You, drive to India, you go to India, you'll get a car and a driver because it's actually cheaper to get a car and a driver than to rent one without one. Your driver will have a cell phone. 
Uh, you visit a friend in a Delhi suburb and you'll find people on the side streets with a, with a cart, with a steam-fired, a coal-fired steam iron, I beg your pardon, to iron clothes for the people in the suburb. That fellow would have a cell phone to take orders. Why? Because the cell phone rates in India are the lowest in the world. The average phone bill uh, is $4 a month. And with this, fisher folk have cell phones, farmers have cell phones. The cell phones have empowered the underclass in India as few things have done. Uh, I'm sorry that that was a digression from the larger theme, but it's an, it's an illustration of how much the transformation of India is real and is penetrating down to the lowest reaches of Indian society. And yet, India may hold the world record for the number of cell phones sold, but it also holds a world record for the number of farmer suicides. 4,000 farmers committed suicide in one district of, of the state of Maharashtra alone last year when the harvest failed. When I addressed the Fortune Global Conference in Delhi last month, it was the day the Bombay Stock Exchange Index, the Sensex, crossed 20,000, just seven months after it had hit 14,000 for the first time. That briefly made India's Mukesh Ambani the richest man in the world, since the value of his holdings overtook the net worth of Bill Gates. But on the same day as that happened, some 25,000 landless people marched on Parliament, clamoring for land reform. We have more dollar billionaires than any other country in Asia, even than Japan, which has been richer for longer. But we also have 260 million people living below the poverty line. And that's not the World Bank's or the UN's poverty line of $1 a day. It's the Indian poverty line of 360 rupees a month or 30 cents a day. In other words, a line that's been drawn just this side of the funeral pyre. We have the world's, as I said earlier, the world's second largest pool of trained scientists and engineers, including many who flourish right here in Silicon Valley. But we also have more children who have not seen the inside of a school than any other country in the world. We have a great demographic advantage in 540 million young people under the age of 25, which means we should have a dynamic, youthful, and productive workforce for the next 40 years when the rest of the world, including China, is aging. But we also have Maoist insurgencies largely made up of unemployed young men violently disturbing the peace in 165 of India's 602 districts. We celebrate India's IT triumphs, but information technology has employed a grand total of one million people in the last five years, while 10 million are entering the workforce each year, and we don't yet have jobs for them. I talked about India's paradoxes, but amongst those paradoxes is that you have asked me to speak about India as a great power when it is not yet able to feed, educate, and employ its people. So there's still a long way to go before India can even begin to resemble a great power. And in understanding India's role in the world of the 21st century, therefore, perhaps we should start with the basics of economic growth, political democracy, and military strength, all of which is real, though the story and the narrative is not complete. But perhaps we should see them as allied to something altogether more difficult to define, the strength of India's weaknesses, the richness of its social and cultural diversity, the power of example. What do I mean by this? If there's one attribute of independent India to which I think increasing attention should now be paid around the globe, and that's worthy of your attention here, it's a quality which India is already displaying in ample measure today without people particularly paying attention, and that is its soft power. Now, the notion of soft power is, is relatively new in international discourse. As we all know, the term was coined by Harvard's Joseph Nye to describe really the extraordinary strengths of the United States that went well beyond 
American military dominance. We all know that power is basically the ability to alter the behavior of others to get what you want, and that there are three ways to do that. There's coercion, sticks, payments or inducements, carrots, and attraction, soft power. If you're able to attract others, you can economize on the sticks and the carrots. Now, traditionally, power in world politics was seen in terms of military power. The side with a larger army was generally likely to win. But even in the recent past, we discovered this wasn't enough. After all, the US lost the Vietnam War, the Soviet Union was defeated in Afghanistan, and the US is discovering in Iraq these days the wisdom of Talleyrand's adage that the one thing you cannot do with a bayonet is to sit on it. So enter soft power, emerging from a country's culture, its political values, and its role in the world to the extent that these are seen as attractive and admirable by others. Now, in today's world, the information era in which we're all living in the 21st century, Nye has argued that three types of countries are likely to gain soft power and so succeed. Now, I'd like you to think about India as I read this quote from him. Quote, those whose dominant cultures and ideals are closer to prevailing global norms, which now emphasize liberalism, pluralism, autonomy, those with the most access to multiple channels of communication and thus more influence over how issues are framed, and those whose credibility is enhanced by their domestic and international performance, unquote. Now, this is where, in my view, India fares rather well today. China has started establishing Confucius Institutes to promote Chinese culture internationally. But soft power doesn't merely rely on governmental action. After all, for the US, Hollywood and MTV have done much more to promote the idea of America as a desirable and admirable society than the governmental efforts of the Voice of America or the Fulbright Scholarships. To quote Nye again, the soft power of a country rests primarily on three resources, its culture in places where it's attractive to others, its political values when it lives up to them at home and abroad, and its foreign policies when they're seen as legitimate and having moral authority, unquote. So this means that soft power is created partly by governments and partly in spite of them. So what does this mean for India? I think it means giving attention, and from the Indian point of view, encouragement, to the aspects and products of Indian society that the world is already finding attractive. Not in order directly to enhance India's status as a great power, but rather to enhance intangibly its standing in the world. Bollywood, for example, is already doing this. The film industry that makes now five times the number of movies as Hollywood does. One out of every four moviegoers in the world is an Indian. But you know, I'm, I'm a writer, as, as Scott said, I'm, I'm a novelist, in fact, and um, I have to admit that my attitude to Bollywood uh, is best encapsulated in the story of the two goats of the Bollywood garbage dump who are chewing ruminatively on cans of celluloid discarded by a Bollywood studio. And the first goat chewing and on the celluloid says, you know, this film's not bad. And the second goat says, no, the book was better. And as a writer, I tend to believe the book is always better. But the fact is, look at Bollywood today. It's, it's, it's not only brought its brand of glitzy entertainment outside India to the Indian diaspora in the US or the UK. In fact, a variety magazine starts counting. You'll find an Indian movie in the top 10 gross box office receipts every other weekend in this country. Um, but it's also going to all sorts of other countries. It's reaching the screens of Syrians and Senegalese. I actually have met a Senegalese gentleman in, in New York who told me that his illiterate mother takes a bus to the capital city of Dakar once a month just to watch a Bollywood movie. Now, she doesn't understand the Hindi dialogue. 
she's illiterate, so she can't read the French subtitles. But the movies are made to be understood despite these handicaps. And she has a great time with all the song and dance and the action. And she leaves the theater with stars in her eyes about India as a result. Or to take a very different example, in Syria, an Indian diplomat friend some 10 years ago told me that the only portraits in Damascus as big, I mean, the only portraits publicly displayed that were as big as those of then President Hafez al-Assad were those of the Bollywood superstar Amitabh Bachchan. Now, this is, of course, um, uh, where, where India scores subtly. But Indian art, Indian classical music, Indian dance have all been spreading the same way. Indian fashion design, which is now uh, striding more and more across the world's runways. For that matter, Indian cuisine, uh, spreading around the world and in fulfillment of the basic French principle that the weight of foreigners' hearts is through their palates. Uh, that, too, has begun to raise India's culture higher in people's reckoning. In, Indi in England today, Indian restaurants, or curry houses as they're known, employ more people in Britain than the iron and steel, coal, and shipbuilding industries combined so the empire can strike back. <laughs> now, the empire strikes back also not just in cultural self-confidence, but in its economic reach. When Jamshedji Tata set up India's first steel plant in the late 19th century in the teeth of British opposition, a prominent Englishman dismissed the endeavor by saying that he would personally eat every ounce of steel an Indian was capable of producing. Well, last year, a descendant of Tata purchased British steel as part of chorus for the Indian company. And I'm not sure which is more symbolic of the reversal of fortunes, the fact that British Steel is now owned by an Indian company, or the earlier purchase by Tata's of the premier British tea company, Tetley's. So when you buy Tetley's tea in Britain, you're buying a product owned by an Indian company. And yes, yes, many Indians still fear that economic liberalization will bring with it cultural imperialism of a particularly insidious kind, that, that Baywatch and burgers will supplant Bharatnatyam dancers and Bhelpuri snacks. And of course, I've disagree strongly. I think India's recent experience with globalization has demonstrated that we can drink Coca-Cola without becoming Coca-Colonized, that Indians will not become any less Indian. Even Mahatma Gandhi's famous metaphor, we open the doors and windows of our country and let foreign winds blow through our house. Our popular culture has proved resilient enough to compete successfully with MTV and McDonald's. But you know, when all of these things happen, when India's cricket team triumphs over England, or its tennis players win grand slams and doubles, when a, when a Bhangra beat is infused into a Western pop record, or an Indian choreographer invents a fusion of Kathak and ballet, when, Bolly, when Hollywood stars are photographed sporting Indian costumes and makeup, um, when Indian films bow the critics in the West to win Oscar nominations, when Indian writers win the Booker or Pulitzer Prizes, when each of these things happens, India's soft power is subtly enhanced. I mean, I'll be very blunt. We're talking today about India, China, and Japan. How many Chinese novelists can the typical literate American reader name? Indeed, how many non-Western countries can claim a presence in the Occidental mind comparable to India's today? And when Americans have begun speaking of the IITs, the Indian Institutes of Technology, with the same reverence that they used to accord to MIT or Caltech, and the Indianness of engineers and software developers is taken in Silicon Valley as synonymous with mathematical and scientific excellence, then it's India that gains in respect. And not just in Silicon Valley. I mean, sometimes this has unintended consequences. I met a, an Indian friend the other day who, like me, was a history major, 
who had been accosted by a perspiring European at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam saying, you're Indian, you're Indian, can you help me fix my laptop? You know? <laughs> the old stereotype of Indians was that of snake charmers and sadhus on beds of nails. Now it's that of software gurus and computer geeks. Well, in this information age, Joseph Nye has argued, it's often the side with the better story that wins. Well, India is and can remain the land of the better story. As a society with a free press and a thriving mass media, with a people whose creative energies are daily encouraged to express themselves in a variety of appealing ways, India has an extraordinary ability to tell stories that are more persuasive and attractive than many of its rivals. Now, this is not about propaganda. Indeed, it will not work if it's directed from above, least of all by the government. But its impact, though intangible, can be huge, even in security terms. To take one example, Afghanistan is clearly a crucial country for America's national security and India's national security. We are practically next door to it. Everyone has their work cut out for them there. You have troops out there, but India doesn't. The most interesting asset for India and Afghanistan doesn't come out of a military vision. It comes out of one simple fact. Don't try to telephone an Afghan at 8.30 in the evening. Why? Because that's when the Indian television soap opera, Sahasbi Kabhi Bahuthi, dubbed into Dari, is telecast on Tolo TV, and no one wishes to miss it. It is the most popular television show in Afghan history. It has a 90% audience penetration rate. It's been directly responsible for a spike in the sale of generator sets. In fact, it so thoroughly captured the public imagination in Afghanistan that in this deeply conservative Islamic country where family problems are often literally hidden behind the veil, it's an Indian TV soap opera that has come to provide an excuse for the discussion of, of family and social issues. In fact, I've read reports of wedding banquets being interrupted for half an hour so that guests can cluster around the television screen. And even of an increase in crime at 8.30 p.m. because the watchmen are busy watching the TV rather than minding the store. In fact, one Reuters dispatch, so this is not the Press Trust of India, this is a, a British news agency, recounted how robbers in Mazar-e-Sharif stripped a vehicle of its wheels and mirrors and hubcaps and windshield wipers recently during the telecast time and wrote on the car in an allusion to the show's heroine, Tulsi, Tulsi Zindabad, long live Tulsi. Now that's soft power. And India doesn't even have to thank the government or charge the taxpayer for its exercise. Indians too can simply say Tulsi Zindabad. The fact is, of course, official policy can also play a role and, and there are Indian diplomats who've argued that, that India is a cultural superpower and it must pursue cultural diplomacy for political ends. And any of you who've been looking at the patterns of, say, the last year would see, I'm just picking at random practically, Davos in January, India, the Hanover Trade Fair in May, theme country of the Bond Biennale thereafter, uh, starring as the guest of honor in the Frankfurt Book Fair in October, then a festival of India in Brussels in November. So India is very consciously trying to project its culture as well. But as I've argued, soft power is not just what anyone, any country can deliberately and consciously exhibit or put on display. It's rather how others see what we are, whether or not we're trying to show it to the world. So I prefer a different example. I was traveling in the Middle East in May of 2004 when the results of the Indian general elections, the largest single exercise in democratic franchise just came in. Now, of course, every Indian general election is automatically the world's largest single exercise in democratic franchise. Last time we had 650 million voters. Next time it'll probably be 700. But the fact is when that happened, what was the result? 
The election was won by a party headed by a female Roman Catholic political leader of Italian origin, Sonia Gandhi, who then made way for a Sikh, Manmohan Singh, to be sworn in as prime minister by a Muslim, President Abdul Kalam, in a country 81% Hindu. Now that extraordinary phenomenon, all my interlocutors in the Middle East countries I was visiting were, were, were awestruck by it. And I have to say, I relish telling the story in the United States, the world's oldest democracy, which for 220 years hasn't yet managed to elect a president or a vice president who's anything but white, male, and Christian. So maybe India, <laughs> India has a small example to offer the US here. But the, but the point is no strutting nationalist chauvinism could ever have accomplished for India standing what that one moment did, as I was discovering in talking to senior officials of Arab Muslim countries in the Gulf at that time. And all the more so since it was not directed at the world. It was simply the spin-off of India being itself. So that richness of diversity, the way in which India has managed diversity and democracy, is, I think, an extremely important part of what I'm here to talk about to you today. It's not just material accomplishments that enhance soft power. Even more important are the values and principles for which India stands. After all, Mahatma Gandhi won us our independence through the use of soft power before the term was even invented. And so did Pandit Nehru run India's foreign policy for the first few years after independence from the lofty planes of values and principles didn't serve us so well when it came to an actual military conflict with China. But the fact is, India has something to stand for in the world, and that is recognized. Now, I'm not suggesting that soft power can solve all of India's security challenges. That's absurd. Now, frankly, a jihadi who enjoys a Bollywood movie may still have no compunction about setting off a bomb in Mumbai. And the US has already learned that the perpetrators of 9-11 ate their last dinner at a McDonald's. So to counter the terrorist threat, there is no substitute for hard power. But they can be a complement to it. And where soft power works, and I believe is increasingly working, is in attracting enough goodwill from ordinary people to reduce the sources of support and succor that terrorists enjoy and without which they cannot function. But I want to go back to some of those negatives I mentioned when I talked about the paradoxes of India because I don't believe that India can play a role in the world without solving its internal problems. We have to look within. We have to ensure that we do enough to keep our people healthy, well-fed, and secure, not just from jihadi terrorism, but from the daily terror of poverty, hunger, and ill health. Progress is being made, as I mentioned. There's been some real progress. There's even been some real success in, 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 in carrying out three kinds of revolutions in feeding India's people. The green revolution in food grains, the white revolution in milk production, and even to some degree a blue revolution in the development of fisheries. But the benefits of these revolutions have not yet reached to the third of our population still living below the poverty line. And I firmly believe that all my talk of soft power will ring hollow until that's dealt with. But at the same time, basic needs are not, what, are not enough either in talking about the role of any country. India has some advantages that perhaps one or two of the other countries we're thinking about today as, as great powers of the future don't have. It's precious pluralism, which is such a civilizational asset in our globalizing world. It's democracy. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, to belabor the point that we can talk about it during our Q&A period, but India has actually managed to endure differences of caste, of creed, of color, culture, conviction, costume and custom, cuisine, consonant, you name it, and yet find a consensus on the simple 
democratic principle that in a democracy you don't really need to agree all the time, so long as you will agree on the ground rules of how you will disagree. I think one of India's great successes as a, as, as a democracy in managing this diversity has been its ability to manage consensus on how to manage without consensus. And that again, our, fr our, th our thriving free media, our contentious NGOs, our energetic human rights groups, all of this, I think, have made of India a rare example of the successful management of diversity in the developing world. Uh, and, and when there are exceptions to this, when there's sectarian violence, when there's, when there's, when there's religious confrontation, that is an assault that undermines India's true heritage and therefore its soft power in the world. But I do believe that uh, despite the many problems the country faces, and which I'm, I have to say I've written about in my books, the poor quality of much of our political leadership, the rampant corruption, even the criminalization of politics, the fact is that things are moving for the better. We're getting a better quality of parliamentarian in recent years. Corruption is being tackled by an activist judiciary and by energetic investigative agencies that have not hesitated to indict the most powerful Indian politicians. The rule of law remains a vital Indian strength. And as I said earlier, NGOs are actively defending human rights, promoting environmentalism, and fighting injustice. And for all, through all this, we have the Indian press, lively, free, irreverent, disdainful of sacred cows. So the India of this first decade of the 21st century is anything but the unchanging land of cliché. There's an extraordinary degree of change and ferment. Dramatic transformations are taking place that amount a little short of a revolution in politics, society, economics, culture. In politics, we've gone from single party dominance to the coalition era. In economics, we've gone from protectionism to liberalization. We've begun to abandon the economics of nationalism, even if it is with the hesitancy of governments looking over their electoral shoulders. You know, democracy does throw up impediments to economic reform, because economic reform these days has rather become like the old joke about Indian diplomacy. It used to be said of Indian diplomacy that it's like the lovemaking of an elephant. It's conducted at a very high level, accompanied by much bellowing, and the results are not known for two years. Now, that's true of economic reform too, because the reforms are pronounced from on high, but there's a lot of vested interests resisting the implementation of it over a period of time. But change is still moving on. In caste and social relations, we've witnessed convulsive changes who could have imagined for 3,000 years that a woman from the untouchable community of outcasts would rule India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, as Mayawati is now doing now as one of the most powerful political leaders in India. It's still true that in many parts of India, when you cast your vote, you vote your caste. But the fact is that too has brought about profound changes in the country because the lower castes have taken advantage of the power of numbers to empower themselves through the ballot box. And finally, in, in Indian culture and on issues of identity, with the rise of and resistance to the Hindu chauvinist Hindutva movement in recent years, we've had a searching re-examination of what Indian pluralism is all about. Now, any of these could have been enough to throw another country into a turbulent revolution. But we've had all of these four dramatic changes in India, and yet we've absorbed them and made them all work because the Indian revolution is a democratic one sustained by a larger idea of India, of an India that safeguards the common space available to each identity within it, an India that celebrates diversity. That I, I often tell Americans, if you're a melting pot, we are not. We are a thali. I don't know how many of you have gone to an Indian restaurant, but there you can get a thali. It's a big stainless, stainless steel plate 
on which different dishes come on different bowls on that plate. Now, they're in different bowls, so they don't flow into the next. But they belong together on the same plate, and they combine on your palate to give you a satisfying repast. That, to me, is the metaphor for India and the way in which it manages to be many Indias and one at the same time. Now, I've already transgressed on the time available to me this afternoon. You know, we're all like Egyptian mummies strapped for time. So I do want to say, I do want to say that I have great, great hope for the survival and success of Indian pluralism. I do believe that no one identity can triumph in India. I also believe that India's civilizational ethos is an immeasurable asset for the country in the 21st century. And as long as India does not allow the specter of religious intolerance or political opportunism to undermine the soft power, which is India's greatest asset in the world of the 21st century, it can, in my view, wield a very different kind of power in the world than the power you've been talking about for much of today. Maintain the qualities I've talked about and true leadership in this globalizing world, the kind that has to do with principles, values, and standards, can be India's. I believe that the India that's entering its seventh decade as an independent country is one that's open to the contention of ideas and interests within it and outside, unafraid of the prowess or the products of the outside world, wedded to the democratic pluralism that is its greatest strength, and determined to liberate and fulfill the creative energies of its people. Such an India truly enjoys soft power, and its independence in today's world is well worth celebrating. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.